What do you do when everything you love in life has been taken from you? Well, where do you turn when tragedy after tragedy, sorrow after sorrow shows up at your door? That's exactly what Naomi, the character that we've been looking at in the story of Ruth, had to figure out with her life. You see, she had gone to a foreign land with her husband, uh, leaving Israel, moving to Moab, and then her husband dies. Not long after her husband dies, her two sons would also die, leaving her as a widow, alone and destitute. And she's got to figure out what to do. She's got to figure out how she should feel now that everything has been taken from her. Uh, her life was bitter. Her, her life was facing uh, horrible, horrible circumstances. And so, as we saw last week, she did the only thing that she knew how to do. She turned around and she went back home. And today, we cover that journey, the journey that she takes to get home. And, and we're lucky, because as we look at this story, we have the advantage of having a, a vantage point that is about 10,000 feet above where she's experiencing the story. She's living through this story. And sometimes you can have tunnel vision when you have pain and sorrow and tragedy in your life. So she's not necessarily thinking clearly. But we have the ability to look at her story from a different vantage point, And we can actually see that God is working through her story the entire time. That's what we're going to see today. In fact, the bottom line for today, the, the, the overwhelming thought is that bitter becomes better through faith. Bitter becomes better through faith. And that's hard to realize. That's hard to recognize when you're in the midst of the bitterness, when you're in the midst of that pain and tragedy and sorrow. And so we're going to look at Naomi's story, and we're going to see how she handles that bitter and how God changes that bitter to better. You see, for the first time in our story, somebody speaks. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 8. On the way, the way back to Bethlehem, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you. We want to go to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes. For I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fits against me. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. You see, even as Naomi is making her way home, she is going to be carrying with her the baggage that she picked up in Moab, the, the, the pain and the tragedy, and she's got to figure out how to do that. And as she's walking home, she's thinking about how everything has been taken from her, how, how she has this pain and this tragedy, how she feels abandoned by God. And, and rather than drag other people into her mess, she looks at Ruth and Orpah, her new daughters-in-law, and she says, turn around. Just go back home. Get, get married. Live your lives. There's, there's nothing uh, for you that I can offer you. I have nothing to give you. So go back home and may God bless you. She gets some pushback at first, but again, Naomi insists that she knows that she has nothing to offer. Can I give you other sons, she says? And even if I could, are you willing to wait for those sons to grow up? 
You see, a lot of times in the Old Testament, when, when a husband would die, the brother of that husband would, would redeem the widow by giving her offspring. That They would have a baby together, and thus the family line of the deceased brother would be preserved. And so Naomi feels this responsibility, like she needs to give Ruth and Orpah a, a, a husband by giving birth to more sons, but because of her old age, she, she realizes that that's not a possibility. Just imagine the, the precision that this uh, scenario would require. She's already at, a, at an age that is beyond childbearing, so we'd have to have a miracle, not just one miracle, but two miracles for her to give birth uh, to two more children. But at the same time, it would have to be a boy. And I don't know about you, but when you go to start a family, you don't normally get to choose whether or not you're having a boy or a girl. In fact, my wife and I, we have two boys, and we've talked often about having a third family. You know, might as well get it done while we're young, Um, but we're a little nervous because we both kind of want a girl, and we're not sure that the risk is worth a third boy because boys are crazy, right? So this is incredible. This would require incredible precision uh, for her to be able to fulfill the responsibility that she feels. So Naomi, she's just being real. She says, I, I can't give you what you need. I can't give you what you deserve. I, so much of my life is gone. I, I can't do anything to help you. And then Naomi makes a very common statement for people in pain. She says, for things are far more bitter for me than you, because God has raised his fist against me. Now I know each and every one of you watching has been where Naomi is before. Because we've all experienced some type of pain, some type of tragedy or sorrow, discomfort or loss. No matter the level of that pain, we've all experienced pain. And we've all come to realize that sometimes life just isn't fair. We've all sat in the doctor's office and heard the words, I've got some bad news. We've gotten the phone call or the text that says, we need to talk now. We've sat across from the boss and we've heard the words, I'm sorry, but we're making cuts. We've gotten home after a long day of work only to be greeted with the words, I'm sorry, I just don't think things are working out. We've looked at our bank account and we've said, again, I'm out of money again. We've gotten that call that says, I'm sorry but your loved one didn't make it. Time and time again, we find ourselves facing tragedy and facing pain, and we will naturally ask ourselves in that moment, where is God in all of this? Has God raised his fist at me? Have you ever felt like God is just raising his fist at you, like he's playing some type of game with your life, and he's taking enjoyment out of all the bitter pain and tragedy that you are experiencing? Naomi's felt it. That's what she's feeling right now in this moment. And so we're going to recognize that bitterness and that pain that she's feeling. But I also want you to recognize something vitally important about her situation and her reaction. She has bitter feelings, yes, but she maintains faith. Bitter feelings, yet maintains her faith. Notice, before she talks about God raising his fist, what does she say to her daughters-in-law? She says, may may God bless you. May God reward you. And then, even in her admission of agony, her admission of, of desperation, she doesn't say, God, because all this bad stuff has happened in my life, you must not exist or, or you wouldn't have let this happen to me. She doesn't give up on God because of her anger, because of her pain. No, no, no. By her very claim, 
By her very claim that God has raised his fist at me, she's acknowledging her belief that God is real. And she's acknowledging that if God can raise his fist at her, he can also lower it. In his book, A Secular Age, the philosopher Charles Taylor wrote that while humans have always struggled with the ways and the justice of God, until quite recently, no one had ever concluded that suffering made the existence of God implausible. So this idea that suffering in the world means that God doesn't exist, that's a new idea. Never throughout history has humanity ever come to that conclusion. Conclusion. You see, sometimes tragedy happens as a consequence of a decision we make. And sometimes it happens because, quite frankly, life just sucks every now and then. And I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I have all the answers to this mystery. But I do know. I know that tragedy and pain and struggle in life does not, does not negate the existence and the love of God. Rather, those moments of pain and tragedy actually present an opportunity for us to trust Him and grow into Him more. It allows for deeper intimacy and and greater reliance on Him than we had before. In fact, throughout the whole of Scripture, we see people facing pain and struggling, and we see God not saving people from tragedy, but bringing them through the tragedy. He doesn't save you from the fire, He brings you through that fire. And Naomi's bitterness stays around for a bit. This is not something that's going to leave her overnight. In fact, when she gets back home to Bethlehem, the story tells us that her old friends were ecstatic to see her. They were so excited. It had been 10 years since they'd seen Naomi, and so they're thrilled that she had returned. They're overjoyed that Naomi had come back after a decade of being gone. And here's how she responds to their excitement. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? You know, oftentimes in Scripture, we can tell a lot about a person's story um, by the meaning of their name. We didn't talk about this last week, but that name Naomi, her name Naomi means lovely or pleasant. But as we've seen, her life isn't so pleasant anymore. So she says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter because the Lord has called me bitter. You see, Naomi's pain is something we can't just brush to the side or explain away. And neither is your pain. It's not something we can just push to the side and not think about. It's real. Your pain is real. Naomi's pain is real. And it will affect every part of your life for a long time. And there will be moments, whether accurate or not, where we feel as if God has raised his fist against us, where we feel as if God has caused all of the negativity and all of the pain and tragedy to happen in our life. But just like Naomi, we must maintain our faith. Naomi could have abandoned God. She could have said, I'm done with this. I'm done with this faith thing. I'm done trusting God. If this is how he treats me, I want nothing to do with him. He he doesn't exist, but she doesn't. Instead, she takes that pain, those feelings of frustration to God. Does she grieve? Yes. Is she frustrated and angry? Absolutely. But 
the very fact that she's going back home to the land that God is blessing indicates that she's still putting her faith in God. She's got bitter feelings, yet she maintains her faith. But the cool part about this story is she's not the only one with faith on display. Let's rewind for a second, and let me show you how Ruth responds to Naomi's pleas to leave and go back home. Ruth chapter 1, the end of verse 14. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Listen, Naomi, I'm not going anywhere. Verse 15. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, Naomi, I will go. Wherever you live, Naomi, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. (laughs) It's about time, right? We're studying a book called Ruth. It's about time we look at the character of Ruth. And so now we finally get to focus on Ruth. You see, Naomi, she's trying to send Ruth and Orpah back to their homes. And Orpah does the logical thing. Orpah does exactly what I would have done. I would have looked at Naomi and said, girl, you bad luck. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm going back home because I don't want any more of your negativity in my life. She does the, the logical thing, in my opinion. She goes home. But Ruth, Ruth is different. Ruth comes through for us and, and sets an incredible example of loyalty, service, sacrifice, and friendship. I want you to take just a moment and think about what Ruth is actually giving up. You see, in 2011, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel, and I stood on a hill in Bethlehem overlooking a vast desert. And it was the desert, according to our tour guide, that Ruth and Naomi would have had to walk 50 miles in to get back to Bethlehem from Moab. Y'all, I wouldn't have spent five minutes in that desert, let alone walk 50 miles, but Ruth, without fear, says to Naomi, where you go, I will go right through that desert. And then she says, where you live, I will live. She may not know this at the time, but remember the prohibition that God put in Scripture about associating with Moabites in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3? Yeah, Ruth is getting ready to walk into a people group that's going to have their guard up. There might be some prejudice. They're not going to want to readily accept her into the family. Will she even be welcomed? We don't know. And then she says, your people are my people, your God, my God. So not only is she giving up her homeland and the place where her family lives, but she's also giving up her God. Everything about Ruth's identity is about to change. She's turning from the God of Moab, and she is fully committing herself to follow Naomi's God. But then she takes it even a step further. She says, wherever you die, I will die, and wherever you're buried, so I will be buried. In other words, the only thing that's going to separate us is death. And you, and you would think, again, if this is me, it's a good thing I'm not the main character of the story, because if this is me, I would give my way, uh, myself a way out of this vow. Like, what happens if Naomi dies within a year of them moving to Israel? Ruth's going to be all by herself in a foreign land, and she's not going to have Naomi there to speak up for her on her behalf. You'd think Ruth would give herself way out, but she says, "Uh uh-uh. Where you die, I'm going to die. The land where you die, that's where I die. The land where you're buried, that's where I'm going to be buried. Ruth is pledging her whole life to being with Naomi, to being with Naomi's people, and to worshiping Naomi's God. She's sacrificing a lot. In fact, I'd sum up her situation like this. She had bitter circumstances, yet chooses faith. 
bitter circumstances yet chooses faith. Everything about Ruth's situation says go back home, just go back home, do the safe decision, follow Orpah, go back home and be safe. But despite all the fears and all the doubts that she might be feeling about, everything that she's giving up, and also that, that, that feeling of loss because her husband has just died, and despite all the reasons that she should turn back, Ruth commits her life to Naomi and following God. Why? Why does she make such a crazy decision? I mean, really think about this. If you're Ruth, why in the world would you hang around and choose to follow God after the way Naomi has talked about him? She hasn't necessarily presented him in the best light. It's not like she said the best things about him. She certainly hasn't talked about God the way that we do here. Why would she stay with Naomi? Why would she choose to follow the God of Israel? Why would she choose faith? Why does anyone choose faith for that matter? Why have you chosen faith? Why have you chosen to follow God? Perhaps Ruth chooses faith because of the testimony of Naomi. Perhaps she chooses faith because she saw Naomi could get personal and vulnerable with God. Ruth's God in Moab, he was an evil pagan God that demanded child sacrifice. It was not a God that you approached uh, lightly and one that you could definitely say, you're shaking your fists at me. So maybe it was the personal aspect of the God of Israel. Perhaps it was God's history. Even though the people of Israel often had to endure pain and, and endure oppression, Ruth may have heard that he always redeemed them when they turned back to him. Perhaps it was even the promise of a better life. After all, God was blessing the land of Israel in this time, and that's why they're going home. We don't know the full decision, or the full motive behind Ruth's decision, but somewhere along the way, she had decided that the God of Israel, Naomi's God, could be trusted and that he was worth following. And even though she was facing some bitter, bitter circumstances and a big risk, Ruth chooses faith. When Shane and I were talking about this message, he uh, alerted me to an idea that I'd never thought of before with my son Griffith. Griffith is two years old, and as he's getting older, he's become more and more independent to the point where he can be playing with something all by himself. But every once in a while, there are moments when I need Griff to listen to me immediately. And in those moments, what I'll often do is I will extend my pinky or my hand, and without even thinking about it, as if it was an instinct, Griff just automatically reaches up and takes my pinky. He doesn't necessarily know why. He doesn't know where we're going. And he may be still looking at the pile of dirt that he was thinking about eating five minutes before. Or he may be looking at the airplane up in the air and he may be bumbling and stumbling all around holding on to my pinky. But none of that matters. It, it doesn't matter the circumstances around him. Griff knows that as long as he has my pinky and as long as he has my hand, everything's going to be okay. He, he can simply trust and hold my hand. And when we choose faith, the circumstances may be difficult. We may be distracted. The outcome may be unknown. We may be fumbling through life just trying to stand up. But as long as we hold on to God, we'll be okay. Whether it happens in this life or the next, we will experience something better. Because bitter becomes better through faith. So let's get to the better. Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and the young Moabite, 
They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Look, the narrator of this story is masterful because in this verse, we're getting a major clue that things are about to get better for these two women. This is a huge foreshadowing moment. Sure, they had bitter feelings, uh, Naomi did, and, and sure, Ruth had some bitter circumstances that she had to trust God on, but God isn't done with them. No, no, no. The story of Ruth and Naomi is about to turn a corner. They're about to face better futures because God uses faith. They're facing better futures because God uses faith. Our, our story indicates that it's springtime. Why is this significant? Well, because springtime is a time of rebirth and renewal. It's a time, at least in our part of the country, in, in New England, when people finally start coming out of the house again. And people you haven't seen for three months of hibernation, you finally see and you say, how was your winter? The sun is up longer and, and you finally start to get rid of that drab February gray that can so often depress your soul. In fact, when I first moved here, I had a friend uh, give me some advice. They said, never make a major life decision in February because you are not thinking clearly. Anybody else relate to that? Like, I'm happy to be coming out of those winter months. Our story is signaling to us that rebirth and renewal and a new season is coming. But he also tells us that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. The barley harvest would take place after the Passover and after the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And at the beginning of the barley harvest, the people of Israel would offer sacrifices to God to thank Him and praise Him for His goodness and His faithfulness in providing crops and looking over Israel. It was a time of celebration. So you can see the irony in this story here. Ruth and Naomi are facing bitter feelings and bitter circumstances, but when they get back to Israel, they enter into a time of rejoicing and celebration and renewal and rebirth. And the author is telling us, better futures lie ahead. For Ruth and Naomi serve a God who uses faith. They serve a God who makes the bitter better. You know how in the Bible there's often these long genealogies. You can just be reading along and then you come across this genealogy. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And if you're like me, be honest here, you skip right over those genealogies because ain't nobody got time to try and figure out how to pronounce those names and who really cares whose dad is whose. As boring as those genealogies may be, they often contain some very helpful information when trying to understand the whole story of the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus is listed all the way back to Adam. And you know who's included in that genealogy? Ruth. The foreign Moabite woman who chose faith in God when the circumstances all around her were bitter. I mean, is that not so God? Is it not so God to, to take a foreign woman who technically wasn't even allowed into the family of Israel and create a better future for her than she could have ever imagined? She not only survived, y'all, she thrived because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would end up sharing the same bloodline as her. God took her bitter circumstances and turned it towards a better future. And Naomi got to have life, it would seem, as we'll see at the end of the story, with a grandson that Ruth gave birth to. God takes bitter and turns it for better through faith. Bitter becomes better through faith. And I don't know what kind of bitter you're facing at the moment. 
I don't know what kind of tragedy or, or pain you're experiencing or, or what kind of unfairness life has brought to your doorstep. I, I don't know what kind of temptation or, or, or risk or overwhelming thought that you feel at this moment in your life. But I do know that no matter what your situation is, I can promise you that maintaining faith and choosing faith in God is always the best option. It is never a bad option to put your faith in Jesus. Look, faith doesn't guarantee an easy life. In fact, if that's why you logged on today, I would just encourage you to hit that little X button because you are not going to get the promise of an easy life here. But you will get the promise of a better life. Because faith promises the hope of eternity. Faith promises the hope of resurrection and renewal, the hope of a relationship with the creator of the universe. It promises purpose and meaning far beyond anything this world can offer you. It offers to take your bitter and make it better. Years later in the New Testament, Paul, the apostle, would write that we have been saved by grace through faith. And faith in that grace, the gra- faith in the grace of God, removes our bitter for better only through the cross. It is only removed through the cross because, listen here, y'all, because on the cross, Jesus drank from the bitter cup of suffering. He tasted the bitter sting of rejection. He felt the bitter sorrow of loneliness. He was crushed under the bitter weight of of shame. He, He experienced the bitter power of sin. He tasted the bitter sponge of wine that was placed to his mouth before his final breath. And on the cross, Jesus embraced the bitter pain of death. Why? So we could have it better. On the cross, we see the love of God displayed for you and for me. On the cross, he offers a welcome invitation for anyone to come and follow him. That's grace, y'all. But believing in that grace, believing that that grace is enough takes faith. And just like Ruth, today you and I have an opportunity to make the same kind of profession of faith that she made. A profession of faith that says God will be your God, his people, your people, his death, your death, and most importantly, friends, his resurrection, your resurrection. And you can do that by being baptized into Christ, by identifying with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if that's something that you're interested in, contact the church through our website, and you can be baptized into Christ. You can take part in his death, his burial, his resurrection for the promise of a better future. The story of Ruth and Naomi is the story of how bitter becomes better through faith. And if you can trust Him, if you can put your faith in Him, He promises to turn your your bitter into better as well. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we know throughout the whole of Scripture that you are a God who takes bitter and turns it better. That doesn't mean that we are saved from the bitter. Sometimes we have to experience the bitter and we have to sit with the bitter and we may not know the answers or like the answers as to why. But God, the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of Your Word tells us that better is coming. For bitter becomes better through faith in the cross of Jesus. And so Father, I pray that each and every one of us would place our faith in You. And that you would use that faith to grow us, to mold us, to strengthen us as we live for the better of eternity with you. 
And we thank you for the cross because by the cross we are saved. By the cross, 